Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. When news broke uh, this September, this is 2014, that we're recording, uh, that there is a whole lot of stuff we never knew about buried in and around Stonehenge, I thought, great. Uh, when it's the end of the year and we do all our unearthed episodes, I'll update our Stonehenge episode. And I filed that away in my brain. And once I got started planning out how we were going to cover our holiday schedule, I penciled it in there. <laughs> and I also remember at some point double checking to make sure we actually had a Stonehenge episode. But in a very Twilight Zone development, when December actually rolled around and it was time to really start recording our unearthed stuff this year, I learned there was no Stonehenge episode in the archive. Uh, I was so sure that we had one that I actually wondered if something had happened to our RSS feed and they disappeared or something. <laughs> so I... um. I opened up that spreadsheet that you and I got when we very first started that had every episode on it, and it was not on there either. And so I just discovered, decided that, I, I don't know, I, maybe I've been body snatched or something. Um, I expressed my bafflement on Twitter, and we got way more people asking us if we were going to have a Stonehenge episode or, or telling us to please do it than we got from people who were like, meh, no big loss, so... Now, also, the archive feels like it's missing something because it doesn't have the Stonehenge episode <laughs> that I was sure it had. So we're going to take a little page from uh, the Sarah and Holly playbook from back when they found Richard III under that car park. And we're going to have an unearthed episode that is actually a whole new thing, but about one specific topic. So next week, we're going to have the unearthed episodes that have become traditional in the year-end time, where we talk about all kinds of things that were dug up in some way or another this year. But this episode is going to be a whole new thing on Stonehenge, both past and what was just discovered about it this year. So here's what we knew about Stonehenge before September of 2014. Uh, Stonehenge is most famously a prehistoric monument north of Salisbury, Wiltshire, in southern England. Its most recognizable features are these immense stones in uh, post and lintel formations known as trilithons. It's thousands of years old, and it was also built over thousands of years at the end of the Neolithic period and the beginning of the Bronze Age in England. Stonehenge is just one of many Neolithic henges. These are all earthworks that include both a circular bank and a ditch. And many of them, but not all, also include stoneworks. So even though those stones are what you think of, probably, when someone says Stonehenge, uh, what makes a henge is the earthward part, the earthwork part. Stonehenge is also the only prehistoric stonework that includes a lintel atop the posts. So there are lots of upright stones, but Stonehenge is the only one from the prehistoric period that has that crossbar over the top. Along with more than 300 hinges and other nearby sites, Stonehenge was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1986. And the stones themselves come in two main varieties. There are sarsen stones, which are made of sandstone that can be found in southern England. The sarsen stones were probably quarried at Marlborough Downs. Then there are the blue stones, and this is a catch-all term for a lot of the smaller stones at Stonehenge. They're not all necessarily the same type exactly of stone. These stones came from a range of places, and some of them were from as far away as what is now Wales. 
Many of the stones that were once part of Stonehenge are now gone, taken away and repurposed for centuries up through the medieval period. Some of the stones are still on the site, but have fallen down from their original position. The ground around the area was also dug up over the centuries for all kinds of reasons, sometimes for vaguely archaeological purposes, sometimes for straight-up treasure hunting. One of these diggers was actually Charles Darwin, who dug, who dug two holes at Stonehenge to study earthworms in 1877. The first official archaeological dig started there in 1901. And over the centuries, people have come up with a lot of possible explanations for what Stonehenge means. It's been studied from every possible angle, anthropologically, archaeologically, mathematically, geometrically, astronomically, just on and on. Every point of view you can analyze it from, it's been done. I think that's one of the reasons that there was uh, at least some talk on Twitter of like, huh, no big loss. Everybody, everybody knows about Stonehenge. Yeah. Legend has tied Stonehenge to Merlin and King Arthur. So according to legend, uh, Merlin brought the stones from Ireland with the help of a giant from Africa. In this story, King Ambrosius Arleanus is buried at Stonehenge along with his brother, Uther Pendragon, who is the father of King Arthur. And for centuries, the academic world generally thought Stonehenge was some kind of druidic temple. This idea goes back to at least the 17th century. And one of the reasons it had so much staying power was that people thought a civilization would have had to advance at least to the Iron Age to pull off such a feat. That's when we have the evidence of the Druids in Britain, largely thanks to the Roman records. It's also not a far hop from the mysterious idea of Druid to the mysterious idea of Stonehenge. They just seem to kind of line up and fit together. However, as soon as carbon dating was invented and used at the site, it completely dispelled the idea uh, that it's a Druid monument. Stonehenge dates back much, much earlier than the Iron Age, and we just don't have records of the Druids existing back that far. So once again, in spite of this preconceived idea that only an Iron Age society would be advanced enough to build something like Stonehenge, in reality, a Stone Age and then Bronze Age society actually did it. I will say that I think a lot of people just have the idea of druids as conventional wisdom tied to Stonehenge, even still, even though that's been pretty thoroughly discredited at this point. I think, like, the common knowledge of Stonehenge to a lot of people is druids. Agreed. I have actually witnessed an argument over this fact, that someone was completely like, everyone knows that Stonehenge was built by the druids. And I had another acquaintance who was like, well, what everyone else seems to not know is that there has been dating done and that is not correct. And you have right. never seen two people dig in so hard on a historical argument in your life. <laughs> in the 1960s, astronomers started to speculate that Stonehenge was basically a giant calendar or a computer for predicting eclipses and other astronomical events. This is actually something that was part of my astronomy class in college. I dug out my astronomy textbook hoping to refresh my memory, and I learned that this is like my astronomy professors went off script and didn't teach it from the book. It was from some other source. Uh, basically, there are all kinds of astronomical events that you can witness by standing in one part of Stonehenge and kind of sighting down another part. And while many of the stones and other formations at Stonehenge definitely follow astronomical lines, so what my teachers were telling me, that was all correct, it all circles back around to, like, was a Stone Age or maybe Bronze Age society sophisticated enough to do that? Uh you know, or or back when it was still thought to be an Iron Age thing, even was an Iron Age society able to do that? Uh, we really don't 
the best track record so far of deciding what different societies were advanced enough to do or not do. So who knows? And over the years, researchers have also theorized that it was sort of a Bronze Age capital for many tribes, like a seasonal gathering place, a funereal monument, a healing site, and a religious site, including sacrificial rites. But for now, it still sits squarely in the not-conclusively-proven category. Yeah, people have all kinds of ideas about what it was, quote, for, and their pros and cons to all these different ideas. Also in the not-conclusively-proven category is exactly how the massive stones on the site got there. Uh, a lot of them weigh between four and eight tons. The blue stones brought in from Wales, some of them had to travel like 300 miles. And so there are theories that maybe they were rolled along logs, or maybe they were floated down the Welsh coast and then up the Avon River. Uh, like the Druid idea, that idea has been around for quite a while, but none of these are conclusively proven. A more recent supposition is that the stones were actually carried in enormous baskets hauled by oxen, or that the blue stones used at Stonehenge were pushed south by glaciers. One of the like counterpoints to that last part that made me chuckle was somebody saying, it seems weird that glaciers would move exactly the right number of stones to put into Stonehenge. <laughs> That made me laugh. I don't I don't think that's actually valid as a counterpoint because the stones are used for other stuff, too. But still, I don't know. Those uh, glaciers are sneaky. I know they're wily. <laughs> so we're going to talk some more about how Stonehenge was built after a brief word from a sponsor. So monuments were actually erected in the Stonehenge area long before the construction of the earthworks and the stoneworks actually started. As far back as 8,000 BCE, hunter-gatherer people erected pine posts in the area, and the purpose of these posts is not completely clear. As we mentioned in our Poverty Point podcast, and as we've kind of alluded to a couple of times in this episode, not particularly common for hunter-gatherer societies to build elaborate monuments, although it's not unheard of. Uh, also in the area are burial mounds that date back at least to 3,000 BCE. The construction of Stonehenge itself was a six-stage process that started around 3000 BCE and ended around uh, 1520 BCE. Construction of other barrows, dwellings, monuments, and other sites went on at the same time. The first stage of building at Stonehenge was from about 3000 to 2935 BCE, and this was mostly an earthwork stage. That's when the circular ditch that's uh, sort of the hallmark of the henge was built. And that ditch is about 330 feet or 100 meters in diameter. So it's uh, today the outer perimeter of kind of what we think of as Stonehenge. It has a high bank on the outside and a low bank on the inside. The builders of this ditch placed antler picks, which were probably used to dig the ditch itself, as well as animal bones down into the bottom of the ditch. Some of these animal bones were much older than the ditch itself is. The ditch encloses 56 pits known as the Aubrey Holes. These were named for the man who identified them, John Aubrey. The Aubrey Holes probably contained Welsh bluestones, and they also contained burial remains of cremated people. The second stage of construction took place between 2640 and 2480 BCE, so that's a multi-hundred-year jump. Burials continued to happen at Stonehenge in the interim, but there wasn't new construction before the second phase started. 
When construction resumed, that's when the huge sarsen stones started to be erected in a very methodical, systematic manner, along regular intervals and following that post and lintel style. The stones are held together using dovetail and tongue and groove joints, much like is used to hold wood together in construction. Wood construction actually may have been the inspiration for how to secure the stones to one another. Big difference, though. Unlike wood, those stones weighed around seven tons. Four upright stones known as the station stones were probably also erected during the second phase, but only two of those are still in place. Timber circles were also built to the north and the south of the stoneworks during this second phase of construction, as was a collection of dwellings that may have been the builder's camp. The third stage started just about 10 years after the second one ended. The building during this phase included a roughly C-shaped avenue lined by banks and ditches, which went all the way from Stonehenge to the River Avon. And this is almost two miles or three kilometers away. A lot of this avenue has since been destroyed by plowing, although when it was intact, parts of it lined up with the sunrise during the summer solstice and the sunset during the winter solstice. This is, of course, one of those features that has led people to believe that Stonehenge is some kind of computer or clock. But in 2008, it was discovered that this line also follows a line of chalk ridges that happen to follow that same course. So it was probably a coincidence. I think it's also one of the things that makes people think druids, solstice. Yeah. More recent stages of Stonehenge's construction spanned from 2280 to 1520 BCE, And these phases largely involved rearrangements of the existing stones and digging of a series of pits that are known as the Y and Z holes. And if you are wondering just how many man hours this massive project may have taken, it's estimated that it's about three million. So that's kind of an overview of Stonehenge as a monument. And uh, before we talk about the discoveries about Stonehenge in 2014, let's take another brief break for a word from a sponsor. So all of this finally brings us to the 2014 discoveries that led us to doing this episode. This latest round of discoveries comes thanks to using 3D imaging to study the site rather than what you might imagine when somebody says archaeological dig. This study is called the Stonehenge Hidden Landscapes Project, and it's a team effort between the University of Birmingham and the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute for Archaeological Prospection and Virtual Archaeology. This project started in July of 2010, and it went on for four years, although the actual field work totaled about 120 days spread across that time. The field studies included magnetic prospection, ground-penetrating radar, electromagnetic induction sensors, earth-resistance surveys, laser scanning, aerial photography, airborne spectroscopy, and other technologies to map the area in a non-invasive way. Some of the pictures of this going on are unintentionally kind of comical uh, because they're guys driving ATVs that are towing these imaging rigs and what we would otherwise think of as a mysterious ancient landscape. (laughs) It just seems very incongruous and kind of anachronistic. In the case of the magnetic prospection, these are actually specially built uh, ATVs to be non-magnetic so that they wouldn't interfere with the readings. And this isn't uh, at all the first time that non-invasive imaging has actually been used to study Stonehenge. There was already a really large body of digital imagery and other non-invasive work that existed. 
However, a lot of that existing body of data focused on the monuments which we already knew existed. And this time, the focus was much more broad. What was actually between all of those monuments? The result of all this is a highly detailed map of what's under the surface of the Earth at Stonehenge and a a 10-square-kilometer region around it, which was obtained without actually having to dig anything up. And their findings include 17 previously unknown ritual monuments, burial sites, and a barrow that dates back to before the first phase of Stonehenge construction. This last one was a huge building made of timber, which was then buried under a mound. The survey also examined the Durrington Walls Superhenge, which is a nearby site that's much, much, much larger than Stonehenge. Durrington Walls has a similar avenue to the one at Stonehenge, which, like the Stonehenge Avenue, aligns with the summer solstice sunset. So there's some speculation that these two sites were meant to kind of complement each other. The findings at Durrington Walls include an entire earlier phase of construction that was previously unknown and has since been buried. The earlier phase included a series of posts or stones, some of which may still exist beneath the surface. There was a whole documentary about all this on BBC Two, which was called Operation Stonehenge, What Lies Beneath, which, full disclosure, we have not watched because it appears not to be available outside of the UK that I can find. And based on all this new information, Stonehenge was not, as popularly imagined, a secluded spot where only a few people visited. There was a whole lot more going on than just what we can see from above ground. And really, this imaging work, as awesome as it is, is really just a next step. It's a tool to figure out where researchers should study next. So it's a treasure trove of new information, but it's also really a way for researchers to figure out what their next project should be. Some of the more recent discoveries at Stonehenge also come from a much less high-tech method, and one that may surprise you. I did not realize that uh, there are people taking care of the grass at Stonehenge and watering it. Uh, In my head, Stonehenge just makes its own grass. I don't know. (laughs) So the (laughs) fact that there are like lawn care people there trying to make sure that it remains lush and green just took me by surprise. But so not druidic magic. (laughs) Right. In the summer of 2013, uh, an irrigation hose pipe that was being used to, to irrigate this area and keep the grass watered was too short to reach the outer parts of the stone circles. And later on, aerial photography of this parched area of land found particularly dry patches. And those are now believed to have been the sites of stones which have since been removed. Yeah, it pretty much confirmed what everyone already suspected slash knew, which is that the circle used to be a complete circle and not a partial circle. Uh, but it did give clues to the exact positions of the other stones, which was less known before. So that is Stonehenge. And all I can think of is Eddie Izzard. All I can think of is Spinal Tap. Between the two of us, we're very entertained. Yes. So... <laughs> Uh, Before we close out, I have some listener mail, and it is from Joanne. Joanne says, Hi, ladies. I am enjoying your podcast while I remodel our 1880s Victorian home. I attempted to count the number of hours I have listened, but it was too time-consuming, and I needed to get back to painting. My favorite episodes have been The Orphan Trains and The Lions of Savo, mainly because of my personal connection to both. Although I don't have any official documentation, I believe my great-grandfather was a child on The Orphan Trains. His name was Thomas. He and his siblings, William, Martin, and Mamie, were placed into the Catholic Protectory, which was an orphanage, 
after their mother died in 1896 and their father could not keep them. Their father later disappeared. The siblings were separated. The orphanage would not give Tom any information because he had become a Protestant. Tom located his brother, Bill, who was a conductor on the subway. Tom talked about the orphan train and how his family reconnected in a later in a letter to his older brother, Martin, dated April 18th, 1918. And he basically, uh, I don't want to read the story because I feel like it's a little pers- too personal to just read on the air. Um, but he sort of tells the story of looking for his brother and then basically finding him in the phone book, which uh, I found to be delightful. He found him in the phone book and then went and met him and confirmed that it really was his brother. Tom would have been sent on the train in 1905. I've not found what happened to the other siblings while they were separated, but Martin was in jail when the later letter was written. William continued as conductor on the subway. Their sister Mamie got married and had a family. My great-grandfather Thomas and my great-grandmother Elizabeth became officers in the Salvation Army. Thomas lived to be 94. As for the Lions of Savo, our family served in the bush in Kenya, Africa, where the man-eating lions were terrorizing the railroad. We lived among the Maasai people. One evening, my husband showed the movie Ghost in the Darkness to the staff at our project. I don't think that many of them slept that night. It did not help that on nights that there was no moon, you could not see two inches in front of you, and you could occasionally hear the roar of lions. We traveled through the Sabo area, but did not stop. The story of the man-eating lions continues to put fear in the hearts of Kenyans and Americans even now. If you ever want to take a road trip to Kenya, let us know. We would be happy to be your tour guides. Then she thanks us for the podcast. Thanks, Joanne. Yes. I love the personal connection. I do, too. And I'll mention that part of the reason that the Lions of Savo story persists and still scares people is that there are still incidents of lions attacking men. Yeah. So. They're doing what lions do. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean to sound callous. I'm just like, they're wild animals. They're going to attack things. Yeah. And we mentioned it in that podcast that this particular group, these lions in this area, are sort of extra aggressive. And there's still lots of research going on about why that might be the case. But uh, there's a reason that fear persists. Yep. It's justified. They are. They are fierce. Uh, If you would like to write to us. We are at History Podcast, thehowstuffworks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we are also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash History. We have a Spreadshirt store full of shirts and other things, and it is at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we've talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and put the word Stonehenge into the search bar, and you will find various things about Stonehenge. You can also come to our site, which is MissedInHistory.com, and we will have in the show notes for this episode links to all the sources we use, some of which have cool pictures of things that have been found and kind of virtual maps of what is underneath the ground at Stonehenge. You can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com.